We'll open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 24. It's time to come home. Those are familiar words when I was growing up, or something like that. My brother and I would get lost in the woods next to the house. Our house was set in a neighborhood, and there was a a giant ravine between us and the next house. And we would find our way deep into the forest, even at night. And if mom yelled, time to come home, it was time to come home. And we were oriented to our home by the light of our house at the top of a hill, even from the bottom of the wilderness, in the bottom of the ravine. Well, today's passage is not so much different than that. It makes a call not so much different than that to the people of Israel, albeit wandering in a very different wilderness. Now let's read this passage together, the entire chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each pile, and it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's son was Shimeleth, the daughter of Debri, the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, When he blasphemes the name, shall he be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. For I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Well, you may not have known it, but this chapter, it could be argued, and I will do so, is at the center of the Bible and its message, and the center of the universe, and even the center, center of time. The center of scripture and space and time. When I was preparing to preach Leviticus, spent about two weeks in the book, and had an out, a preaching outline, and, and wasn't planning to preach chapter 24. It just struck me as somewhat redundant. We've got priestly duties, and I wasn't sure what these were about. Um, some of the, the, the laws in here from verse 17 and on are found in other parts of the Pentateuch. I wasn't sure what was happening with this blasphemer. But as can happen, uh, before I was done settling that outline, come to see that this particular chapter is not merely, not just obsc- not obscure, although obscure on its face, but is central for us. In fact, what this chapter is doing for Israel, we must have God do for us today. And I'm praying he will through this word. Deuteronomy, excuse me, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are the foundation for the whole Bible and everything to follow. Pentateuch is put together five books, and the two books at the wings mirror one another in some important ways. These two books mirror one another in some important ways, and they all hold Leviticus like a diamond in the middle. And as we've said, in the middle of the book of Leviticus is Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, where our sins are taken away entirely, albeit for a year under the Old Covenant. But it's that big moment when we are fully forgiven, and a goat goes into the wilderness with our sin, and another one goes into God's presence. And so that chapter is structurally center. But in an important way, this chapter, maybe we wouldn't say is center, but this chapter is the climax of the book. I'll explain how that's so. Chapters 1 through 16, you'll remember, the way to life with God through sacrifice and a priesthood and these goats and the Day of Atonement have our sins taken away. The second half of the book, this second side, um, is the way of life with God through holiness, where God is, having brought us into his presence, is now transforming his people by his holy presence. And it's on this half of the book that we find out what it's like to live with God. And we have three chapters, 17 through 19, concerning holiness and what it is to live a holy life. An intact life as God has intended it for his glory and love for neighbor. And in chapters 23 through 25, and we're in the middle of those chapters right now, we have three chapters devoted to Israel's calendar. In other words, her her life in time. The calendar rhythms weekly and annually and even every seven years and every seven times seven years. Chapter 25 will deal with that. And these chapters deal with the festivals and life in celebration in the presence of God. What is is life like with God when we come to him through blood and we live for him and with him in holiness? Well, it's a celebration. It's a life of intimate fellowship with God. It's a life of joy. 
And of course, in this cursed age with our fallen bodies and remaining sin, we struggle with these things. But the joy that we have in God here is a taste of the joy that we will have that is perfect to come in the new creation. Well, these three chapters, 23 through 25, are a unit. And at the center of that unit is chapter 24. Chapter 23 and 25 bookend chapter 24 in the middle. And I'll get into a little bit of what's in those side chapters and how they hold the middle chapter before we're done. Now, I'm saying it's the climax of the book, and you can see it's the middle of the, it's the, middle of the last major section. Well, 20, chapter 26 is something like an application of the whole book. And then chapter 27 is something like an appendix or an addendum. In other words, chapters 23 and 25 really are the height of the book, the climax of the book. And where we are in this chapter, in this moment, is at the height of the highest part of the book. And the focus of our morning will largely be on this first half. This first half where we have a picture of a lamp stand and a picture of, of bread. We'll move through the morning in three parts, working through the whole chapter. What it looks like to have a relationship with God, the worst thing you can do. And friends, it's time to RSVP. So heaven, the presence of God, what it's like, the biggest obstacle in the way of it, and our response. Well, let's head into this first section here. What it looks like to have a relationship with God. The movement of this book and of the whole book is a movement into life. In this chapter, in this beginning section here, this image of bread and and a lamp holds out the promise of life in Christ for those who know him. This this section right here, verses 1 through 9, gave to Israel a vision of all that God would do for and be for her in order to sustain her through her wilderness wanderings, holding out a promise to get her through her difficult time. And so it will do that, I pray, for us. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. So what is this picture worth? What is this a picture of exactly? Well, if we meditated on it long enough and we've gotten used to reading Leviticus and thinking in symbolic terms, remember that the tabernacle is a symbolic place that represents the heavens and all that God made as a habitat for God and humanity. And here in a sin-cursed world where none of it really feels like home, if we're honest, and where it's certainly no home for God and humanity, God is restarting everything right here in this Tent And with the system of this tent, he is bringing humanity to himself. He's bringing sinners to himself. And what is this image of bread and, and lamp then? We've gotten used to thinking in these terms. Well, if I leave my house for a couple of days, I might leave the light on. And why would I do that? Why would you do that? So that people think you're home. And it's a little deception. And you're really pulling one over on a robber or someone who would seek to do you harm. And they deserve it. Now, I've never done this. But in our home, if the light is on and there's bread on the table, 
we're home. You're trying to mess with me and you want to know if I'm really home? Look at the table. If there's food on the table, actually, we leave food all over the place. Sometimes there is food on the table. It doesn't, you know what I mean. If the table is set and ready for serving, the hunters are home. What does this mean? It's an image to Israel. God's tent. The lights are on. The table is set. The Lord is home. And we are to be at home with him. But let's put this in context of the progress of the story of our relationship with God, and in particular in the book of Leviticus, so we can appreciate how climactic this picture of a lamp shining light on bread really is. You remember in Exodus 34 where, where Leviticus picks up, where the glory comes down on the tabernacle Not just the dwelling place of God, but it is to be the tent of meeting between God and man. And that Moses can't go in the tent because God is there. And God is glorious and holiness and and Moses is not. And Leviticus is the answer to the question, okay, so how can sinful man dwell with a holy, glorious God forever? And we have our answer in, in priests and these sacrifices which taught us so many things. And you'll remember, in Leviticus chapter 9, we get the promise that the Lord will appear. And in Leviticus chapter 9, the Lord appears. The sacrifices are offered for sin and the burnt offering, representing our whole life given to God. And it's a pleasing aroma to Him. And He comes and light flashes forward out of the tent and consumes the burnt offering. And that in itself was a climax of the tension that began the book. Here God appeared in his tent and he is with us. Oh, but it wasn't enough. Nadab and Abihu are struck dead moments later presuming on their sin. And so we have the day of atonement, which is a way to fully take care of sin. We are reminded of his holiness and of our our distance from him. But he persists with us and did not give up on us. And so Leviticus 16, whereas Whereas Moses could not get in the tent, now Aaron goes all the way into the Holy of Holies once a year. Well, what is this picture in Leviticus chapter 24? And how does it, how does it further extend the grace of God and his message to us of grace in this book? Well, let's meditate on these nine verses slowly together. In verses 1 through 4, we have a command for Moses to take the, to, for the command of the people of Israel to bring pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp. The light may be kept burning regularly. Note that word regularly. It appears regularly, continually. Three or four times in this passage, he's to do this continually. It's a point of emphasis. This is to, go, this is to happen in an ongoing manner. The regular maintenance of this lampstand is crucial. The lamps. Now, what are, the, what are, what are these lamps? Well, in Numbers chapter 8, you don't need to turn there, but in Numbers chapter 8, we get a little bit more. When the Lord spoke to Moses saying, please speak to Aaron and say to him, when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. This is inside the tent before the Holy of Holies. This is how it's lit. 
And Aaron did so, and he set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. Its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. Well, it looks like a tree. It carries lights. So let's meditate on this. We've got seven lamps on the lampstand, seven lights, seven that number of perfection. Seven, that number that was revealed to us in the story of creation in manifold ways. Remember the first sentence of the creation story, seven words, the story unfolding in seven paragraphs, leading to the climax of the seventh day when humanity and God enter into rest together, the full enjoyment of relationship with God and all that he had made. Those sevens, are not only embedded in creation, but they are embedded in time itself. A pattern of seven being a pattern for humanity. And under the old covenant, Israel to remember the Lord their God and that he is their Lord and that he sanctifies them to himself every seventh day called a Sabbath. The festivals last week we saw are built on these complex patterns of seven. And next week when we See about the year that slaves are released and debts are given every seventh year and every seven times seven years, 49 years, the year of Jubilee. Sevens are the structure of time, biblically speaking, and for the people of Israel. Everything was on a cadence of seven. And so here are seven lights. And lights is not insignificant. There are some linguistic connections here, more of them back to the story of Genesis So that we see at the center of the story of Genesis, the luminaries are put into the sky. The Lord lights up the earth with the lights in the sky. You saw that picture from the new telescope. If you hold your finger out, you've got a grain of sand, which I think I could still see if I had one on there. You zoom in on that grain of sand, however many million, bazillion light years away, and you have thousands and thousands, not of stars, but of galaxies. And all of that is here to light up the earth. All of that is a nightlight. We have the story of creation, and it speaks of the creation of the earth and also the stars. The luminaries in the heavens were there not only to light the earth, but to keep time, morning and evening, morning and evening, and the seasons The stars and the sun and the moon for keeping time in the seasons. We have seven lights on this lampstand, which itself holds the lights in little flowers. All of this is reminiscent of the garden. The Israelite who grows up reading the stories sees a recreation in miniature of what God had set up in the original creation. And all of this is holding forth the promise that God hasn't given up on us. And so he hasn't given up on you, and he hasn't given up on me. No, he sticks with us. And so regularly, the priest is keeping the lights on. And so the lights are on in God's plan for you and for me. Seven lamps. Now we have 12 loaves of bread in the second paragraph. 12 loaves, fine flour, unleavened, they'd have been in two piles, I originally thought, man, two piles of six loaves each, that would be kind of high. 
Now they're flat and kind of hard, so easy enough. Two piles of six loaves on this table. The table was 27 inches high, 36 inches long, and 18 inches deep, if you think and imagine in inches. And there the two piles of the loaves of bread would sit. Twelve piles, twelve loaves total, twelve. That number that is shorthand for the people of God. Twelve tribes of Israel, a loaf to represent each tribe. Remember the twelve gemstones, the the names on on Aaron's uh, breast piece as he goes into the, represent the people of God. This is a poetic, beautiful, symbolic, shorthand way of, of saying those twelve loaves represent the people. And not just the individual people, but all the people, the tribes of people, and the twelve of them. God keeps all of his people. And here, the loaves representing fellowship with God. Even the frankincense as a a food offering, I think it says. This is a covenant forever. Verse 8. So appropriate that there's food there then. So here, in front of the holy place, is a continual symbol of the light of God shining perpetually, continually. Remember the time in sight. Every day, every year, all the time on all of his people. This vision right here, and by it God's promise to be with his people and shine his face on his people forever, is profoundly encouraging. Moses couldn't get in, and now Moses makes it all the way in, but we're all there, represented by these 12 loaves. And we're not just there, but we're kept warm by the light of the shining face of God. That is precisely the Aaronic blessing, the priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 6, which you may have heard, which we will end with this week. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. How does the Lord want Aaron, the priest, blessing the people? Here's what I want you to say to my people. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you and the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you and the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so they shall put my name... Note that word name, upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The name of God on his people being the bond between his people and himself. So we have 12 loaves under 12 lights. What is the point of it all? The purpose of God in creating the universe is that people would have fellowship with the God of the universe. And this right here is at the center of space, the luminaries and the lights given to mark the times and season and light the earth represented here in the lamp. It's at the center of space, it's the center of time. Those lights being seven representing time in the calendar. 
God has them surrounded with himself. He is looking on them from every side. And it's at the center of scripture as we've seen the climax of this book and its message. The Lord, the one true and living God who covenants with his people is committed to intimate personal fellowship with you and with me and with his bride forever. And this vision sustained, was to sustain Israel through her wilderness wanderings. And so a vision of God committed to his people and his shining face on us forever sustains his church to this day. Look at this and take courage. God, in a very simple way, with simple things that we all have, a little bit of light and bread, has communicated his deepest commitments to us. Now the second part. And it's difficult to understand, at least at first, how the second part of the book relates with, the second part of the chapter relates with the first. I'm titling this, The Worst Thing You Can Do. That's what came to my mind. Um, This is a pretty bad ending for this guy. And um, not to do this to him when the Lord commands would be the worst thing the community could have done. And I think that's a good way in. Remember the name of God. The prayer for God's face to shine on his people, to bless his people. And my name will be on them. Verse 10, now an Israelite son whose father was an Egyptian went out among the people and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. So there's a fight. You've got one son who's an Israelite, full-blooded. You've got another son who's half Israelite, half Egyptian. And they're getting all tangled up. One was probably in the wrong place. One may have really just hated the other because he was half an Israelite. Who knows? Good amount of sin going on here. I'm sure it goes both ways. They got in a fight in the camp, verse 11, and the Israelite woman's son, this is the son of the Egyptian, blasphemed the name. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And so my name will be upon them. The bond between his people and him. And this man blasphemes the name and curses his God. And they don't know what to do with him. They bring him to Moses. And then they they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be clear. We're not sure what Moses. They would, of course, go to Moses. Moses puts him in jail until he has a clear word from the Lord on what to do here. And perhaps the question of what to do had to do with the fact that he was a part Israelite and part Egyptian not sure exactly, but that's what they do. So that's what happened. And what were they to do about it? Well, then we get some instructions. Bring him out of the camp, the one who, was, who cursed, and, and let all who heard him lay their hands on him and let the congregation stone him. So he was to be put to death. There are some helpful takeaways here for our endeavors are important endeavors in human justice. Uh, every human nation is accountable to true justice. And so the church is that voice that speaks a clear word about right and wrong, good and bad, good and beautiful, 
and what is just and unjust. And, and there are important takeaways here for our endeavors in human justice. For example, take through them. Uh, it's important that there's process involved. It's not visceral and, and, and a person taking out justice, but they put him in custody till the will of the Lord was clear. Well, until we know what to do, uh, we put him in custody. And that matter of procedural or we'll call it legal justice, the state handling things, and Israel was a state, and going to Moses uh, uh, carries over. It's to be truthful, verse 14. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Two or three witnesses were required. You could have someone sin in an egregious way, and if it was not substantiated, um, they may very well get away with it. And that happens in, with human justice. It can happen. It can also happen that several witnesses lie, and that a man who shouldn't suffer for his wrongs hasn't committed the wrongs in the first place. That can happen. It's a human process. Truthfulness is important. It's to be personal. And let the congregation stone him. In verse 15, speak to the people of Israel. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. He bears his sin. He doesn't bear the sin of his group. He bears his own sin. It's to be impartial. Verse 16. All the congregation of Israel shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And proportional. You know, this last section here, I think one insight as to why we get, you know, what to do when someone scratches their neighbor or hurts his animal, you know, animal for animal, eye for eye, life for life, that sometimes to our ears sounds like mean Bible, but actually it's an important principle of proportionality. In other cultures within the ancient Near East, they would kill you for theft. Well, you're not to kill one for theft. Uh, he can give it back and repay some more. It's to be proportional. Punishment should fit the crimes. This is where it comes from, and that makes sense. We, in our fallen sense of justice, want to land a greater punishment on one for what he has done. That's important for me as a parent to remember. There are different motives my kids have for doing foolish things and wrong things, and then outright, bold-faced, high-handed things that are wrong. And so as our parenting fathers, we can be proportional in our discipline in the leadership of our homes. So all of that is helpful. But why is all of that here, including this whole story about the blasphemer? Well, a couple thoughts about that. In the first place, we have a contrast of two destinies. We have the people of God before the face of God forever in fellowship with him. Here in this second story, you have a very different destiny. And it's helpful for me to clarify that it's not just that he used the Lord's name as a curse word. Not every sin got the same punishment under the old covenant, Israel. In this case, he blasphemed the name and he cursed. In other words, he, he cursed at God, he cursed God with his mouth. He called God evil. And that didn't come out of nowhere. So this man was part Egyptian, part Israelite. Maybe he was conflicted about who he really was. In any case, he didn't, he didn't like Israel's God. He headed out for Israel's God. In the context of the fight, he said what he thought. What was in his heart came out. 
This was a man living against the Lord, and he spoke evil against the Lord, not just evil against him, but evil of the Lord. And this, this got the punishment of death in Israel. And so we have in the first half of the chapter a little picture of eternal salvation. And in the second half of the chapter, by way of contrast, we have a little picture of eternal damnation. And as he has blasphemed and spoken against the name of God, that name which binds Israel to himself, we can find what it means to be identified with God in a saving way, and that is to take his name upon yourself, to praise his name, to revere his name, to worship his name. And so this picture of Israel and the image of the loaves under the light is a picture of God's people forever in God's presence praising the name of God, which is what we do when we gather, which is what we seek to do in every minute of our lives with God's help. We do all to the glory and praise of God. A a, a picture of salvation and a picture of judgment. So what's the worst thing you can do? Well, a word to each of us. It is to harden your hearts in unbelief so as to fall away from the living God. To curse the Lord of heaven. Mark Chapter 3, verse 28, you may be familiar with. I'll read it for you in a moment here. Mark 3, verse 28, excuse me. Has those familiar words. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Receive that as a generous proclamation for those who come to Christ by faith. And whatever blasphemies blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. You see, what was happening here is they were rejecting. The scribes were accusing Jesus of being uh, a demon, a prince of demons. So that's black. That's. That's what that guy was doing in Leviticus chapter 24. They're cursing the Son of God and accusing him to be a devil. And he says, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that is to reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus Christ revealed in his word. And so, friend, if you hear the preaching of the gospel week in, week out, and receive it with joy, and thank God for it, praise the Lord, Don't worry about this landing on you. You may have an overly sensitive conscience. We should have a sensitive conscience. But we shouldn't feel guilty for sins we haven't committed. If you receive the word with joy, praise the Lord. If you come to church and you hear the word preached, and you reject the word, you reject the Holy Spirit's testimony about Christ, you might as well call Christ a devil. And there is no hope for you Apart from turning to him. We have to read this within a larger theology. The apostle Peter and Paul will preach the gospel to those who crucified the Lord of glory. So I take this to mean, 
Although he doesn't expand on all that it could mean, I take this to mean within the context of everything else we see in the New Testament, that if you turn from your sins and the sins of rejecting Christ, that you can be forgiven. But do not stay in the sin of rejecting the Son of God. There is no hope for you then. And this picture here, this little story of of a man who blasphemes the name and is stoned, ain't nothing. In the same way that this picture of loaves of bread before the light of God is nothing compared to what it will actually be, so too this picture of the, a capital punishment at the hands of the people in obedience to God is nothing compared to what comes to those who blaspheme the name and curse the God of heaven with their whole heart. Please turn And on the invitation to you is to join the people of God in praising the God of heaven and seeing the light of the face of God forever. And I pray that will be yours. So that's a word to each of us. One more word to each of us. Someone else's sin in the church, dare I say a preacher or a pastor's sin, Someone else's sin, a Christian sin that you know of, a brother and sister if you're a Christian, or, or a Christian and a member of our church if you're not a believer, a brother or sister's sin, even sin against you personally. It's no excuse for your own sin against the living God. And let me plead with you to look past it and look to the Lord of heaven who is greater than and more holy than and more loving than your Christian friend who sinned against you. You see what happened here in this fight, this entanglement between an Israelite and a half-Israelite and an Egyptian. Both were at sin, but the Egyptian cursed the God of heaven and was judged for it. Justly so. In our marriages, it's important to remember. In our relationships, it's important to remember. And in maybe your complicated relationship with a church or the church, it's important to remember that we're all guilty of 100% of our own sins. And so are other people. And if any of us are to get off, it's only by the grace of God. The only people who will experience the shining face of God forever in His presence, pictured in this little depiction here, are those who come to God through the sacrifice of a lamb and have their sins taken away. So come to Christ and have your sins taken away. Christ, the Lamb of God, who is slain on the cross so that your sins can be taken away as far as the east is from the west, so that you can experience the joy of God in heaven forever and don't let the sin of somebody else come between you and that. And I mean to legitimize in every way the actual grievance that you may have. But please don't let that come between you and God. Now a word to the congregation, to our local church here after this passage. The concern for the name among the people. The people, the congregation was responsible for protecting the name of their covenant Lord. And so, under the old covenant, if one cursed and blasphemed the name, certainly by that proving they had nothing to do with the Lord of heaven and the God of Israel, 
then they were to be put out, to be cut off. In this case, they were put to death. And just a simple application that we've made before as a church from this book and a similar passage, it's very important, it's not an exact science, but we listen to one's confession as a church before they are baptized. It's very important that we baptize regenerate Christian believers. And it's very important that when one among us, and we follow the instructions of our New Testament that Jesus gave us in Matthew 18, it's very important that we be willing to put one out of the church in a public way. That's in the context of a family meeting, but so that we all know and agree together in the Lord while they have taken the name of the Lord and called themselves brother or sister, and while we have pronounced the name of the Lord on them, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in baptism, we do not consider them as identified with the Lord's name. The Lord's covenant name is his bond with his people. And under the new covenant, baptism and church discipline, or membership, while we do membership interviews, are the way that we do good on expressing the vitality of the shining face of God on his people in our local church. If a day comes when we don't have the courage to do that through a proper process, and and in all honesty as we seek someone uh, to restore them in love, but if we ever come to a day when we do not have backbone as a church to do the hard thing and put someone out of communion, then we have no church. Because if you can't say what something is not, then you can't say what something is is. We're doing great on this. We're committed to the right things. At the beginning of this chapter, we have an encouraging picture, and in the second half of this chapter, we have a sobering story, and so it is sobering for us. Nevertheless, by way of contrast, we're able to see just all that God has done for us and is committed to doing for us in the picture of the bread under the lamp. Let's move to our last section now. It's time for an RSVP. We've said that the book of Leviticus is an invitation to life with God. That's what the book is. It's an invitation for those who do not know the Lord to come in to life with God through sacrifice of Christ and through Christ's sacrifice offered as a great high priest for us. God has provided incredible life on promise promised to those who are his, and he has provided a high priest who can do good on all that he has promised. So come to God through his high priest, Christ. He's yours, and everything God promises is yours forever through him. And if you're a Christian, come all the more deeply into fellowship with him. That's what this book is about. The second half of the book, moving us deeper and deeper into fellowship with God. And this, a picture of us in his intimate presence forever with him. His face shining upon his people. Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, is an invitation for us to come into the life of God. When you receive an invitation to a birthday party or a wedding or whatever... You consider your availability, you put it on the calendar, and you look forward to it. You arrange your life accordingly. You make plans. And for the right thing, if you're not available, you make yourself available. Well, on offer to us in this picture is an invitation into the life of God. 
And it's worth rearranging all of life to know. Leaving all behind and following Jesus, our high priest and our sacrifice who makes it possible. And it's this invitation into the life of God, into more intimate life with God, this invitation to experience the fullness of this promise and this picture of bread and a lamp that sustains the church. It's a vision of the church complete in the presence of God that sustains the church. It's a vision of tribes and languages and peoples and nations around the throne of Christ, praising Him forever, radiant as a bride, invited all of them to the supper, marriage supper of the Lamb. It's that vision that, the, that John gave to the church in the first century that functions in the same way that this did for Israel in the wilderness. And so, friends, Leviticus is not only an invitation for us to enter into the life of God more intimately, but it is an invitation to share as priests. Not only to come to God through his priests, but as a kingdom of priests, we are an invitation to share. You're familiar with the image. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Not from the darkest corner of the earth, if we can get the gospel there. A city on a hill. And so let us pray for the vitality of the witness of our church. That as we gather on the Lord's day and as we sing with one voice and as we love one another, that we would have a vital witness to the community. An unmistakable light in the darkness. Not only exposing sin for what it is, of course, but drawing sinners to our Savior. And since Jonathan is here and as we've been praying... It's precisely what we're praying for among the Riyamalayu. That a church would be established with a gospel witness. Not only preaching the gospel in word among their own people, in their own language. But witnessing to the beauty of the gospel through the light of their life together. As they share in communion around the Lord's table. And as they love one another. As happens nowhere on earth except the church under the shining face of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have shined your light into our dark hearts. And they were darker than the darkness that was here before you made anything. And you have made something out of nothing in us. And you have made something out of nothing in this church. And so we pray for your word to continue doing its work. Keep us from trying to muscle out a great church. Keep us from trying to humanly engineer some type of great experience. Do the supernatural work of stirring us up in love for one another, in faith in your promises, and in the gospel of Christ, and in his glorious hope of resurrection. And from that hope and from that love, Father, may the the neighbors in our community and in our workplaces and in our families see the light of Christ and come. And may this passion and this radiance out of this local church overflow in prayers and love and creative resourcing and partnering with our partners on the ground in Indonesia so that there may be a church established in that place among the Riyamalayu 
And so that there may be a light that gives way to light that gives way to light. As we know, it will. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.